Good morning, Grace. For those here and those online, welcome. Today's scripture reading comes from the book of Habakkuk, starting in chapter 1, verse 12, and going through chapter 2, verse 5. Are you not from everlasting, O Lord my God, my Holy One? We shall not die. O Lord, you have ordained them as a judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for reproof. You who are of pure eyes and to see evil and cannot look at wrong, why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? You make mankind like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. He brings all of them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his dragnet. So he rejoices and is glad. Therefore he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his dragnet. For by them he lives in luxury and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and mercilessly killing nations forever? I will take my stand at my watch post and station myself on the tower and look out to see what he will say to me and what I will answer concerning my complaint. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. Moreover, wine is a traitor, an arrogant man who is never at rest. His greed is as wide as Sheol. Like death, he has never enough. He gathers himself for himself all nations and collects as his own all peoples. This is God's word. Good morning, church family. Last week we started in a series in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Subtitle is From Why to Worship. From Why to Worship. It's a short book, and maybe you're having a hard time finding it in the uh, minor prophets, uh, but it's a book that is packed with insight on, into how we navigate living in a world full of evil and trouble. And don't we desperately need help navigating a world full of evil and trouble? Anyone here figure it all out? Anyone here mastering it? Killing it? Crushing it? I know it's not cool to preach on suffering. I'm sure some of you are wondering, why do you guys preach so much on suffering? My response is, um, have you read the Bible? Pick any book of the Bible, truly, pick any book of the Bible, 
And it won't take you long before you find it saying something about the evils of this life or the trials of this life. It's just all over this book. And so if if you want to read the Bible and avoid anything about sin and suffering, you have four chapters. Genesis 1 and 2, and they're awesome, and we preached on them. And you have Revelation 21 and 22. When it's all made new, that's it. And so we preach on suffering because we preach on the Bible. God knows how we ought to navigate the brokenness of life better than we do. And so the good news is he shows us. The good news, he's given us his word. Last week we looked at Habakkuk 1, 1 to 11, where Habakkuk laments, and even, uh, it's a biblical term, complaint. He complains to God, he cries out to God about the evil and the injustice that he sees among his own people. And he, and he cries out two questions, how long and why? Habakkuk shows us how we relate to God when life doesn't make sense. We ask questions. We cry out to him. We, 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 we fight to keep trusting that God is in control. And then we need to be able to accept that even though God may not answer these specific questions, he does answer our deepest questions. Today, Habakkuk offers a second complaint, a second lament to God after hearing God's first response. He offers his first complaint and then God responds. And Habakkuk's like, that's not great, so i got to offer another one to you. And so we're going to look at wrestling and waiting by faith. Waiting. It's in this text today. Waiting. Here's the thing. No one enjoys waiting. Anyone here say, waiting is, is my thing. I love it. It's my spiritual gift. Anyone. Anyone at all? No one, we hate waiting. Whether it's waiting in a grocery store, in a line, or waiting for a customer service representative to pick up the phone and basically tell you what you already know, that they can't help you, or uh, waiting for food to heat up in the microwave or in the oven. We don't like waiting ever, ever. I confess to you, I struggle with the sin of impatience. You can ask my wife. I can't stand driving behind someone who's driving too slow. And by the way, everyone other than me is driving too slow. That's the problem. I can't even walk. I, I, even, I have to walk fast. David and I took a walk the other day. We had, it was like the first time we were able to kind of just her and I take a walk. And I'm speed walking. And, and she's like, what, what are you doing? Where are you going? I'm like, I don't even know. I can't help it. I got to go fast. I don't like that about myself. But in reality, there's a kind of waiting that really pains us more, doesn't it? Waiting for that relationship that we, we think we need or long for. Waiting for that dream job, a better job. Waiting for that uh, acceptance letter to a school. Waiting for the test results. You see, waiting tests our faith like few other things do especially when we don't get the breakthrough that we are hoping for or the results don't come back the way we wanted them to. The relationship doesn't happen. What God wants to show us today is that it's possible to wrestle and to wait by faith. 
We can do those by faith. How do we do that? How do we wait and how do we wrestle by faith? Number one, first lesson we see in this text is we need to remember God's character as you lament life's troubles. You need to remember God's character as you lament life's troubles. Habakkuk, in verse 12 here, is taking up another lament after hearing the Lord's response to his first lament. And you notice he says, he says, Lord, why don't you do anything about the evil and violence around me? That was the first 11 of verses. Why don't you do anything? And God basically says, I am and I will. I'm going to send the Babylonians down. They're an evil and wicked people. They're brutal and ruthless. And they're going to come and they're going to judge my, our, my people. And ultimately, they're going to take them into exile. I'm going to do something about it, Habakkuk. You ask, now I'm going to tell you what I'm going to do. And Habakkuk says, whoa, 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 whoa. The cure is worse than the problem. But look where he starts now. Look where he starts. He's going to offer complaint. He's not happy. He's still frustrated, uh, confused, bewildered. He doesn't understand what's going on. But look where he starts in verse 12. He starts by recounting God's character. He says God, God three things. At least God is eternal, God is covenantal, and God is sovereign. Look at the first question, verse 12. Are you not from everlasting? Habakkuk affirms, even as he's wrestling this out, he is remembering God's character. Are you not eternal? Are you not from everlasting? Why is it important to remember God's character, that he is eternal? Because it means he never changes. It means he is trustworthy in a world where everything is changing and even changing more rapidly God's eternality, His everlasting nature reminds us, it gives us a sense of security to know that God never changes. He never makes mistakes. He never second guesses Himself. He knows the end from the beginning because He's already at the end, even as He is already at the beginning. And so as we navigate the ups and downs of life, which our lives are, you know, God is, is consistent, right? But our lives are like this. It's like a roller coaster. And so as our lives are going like this, it's helpful to know that God's life is not going like this. Good grief. If he was on the roller, if he was the one, ah, God's like, no, I'm good. I know what I'm doing. God rolls above it all with certainty and consistency, and, and Habakkuk is teaching us, is reminding us, is showing us, remember this. Remember who he is, even as you're lamenting. But he's not just eternal, he is what I'll call covenantal, or you could say personal. Covenantal is just stronger. Habakkuk highlights God's covenant with his people. Notice he says, Oh, Lord, my God, my Holy One, Lord there. In your Bible, it's, it's in all capital letters. That's, that's what they did in, in the Old Testament when they wouldn't write God's sacred name, His divine name, His unique name of Yahweh. They wouldn't say that. It was so holy, so honorable. And so they would write Lord in place of it. But that's His name. And, 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 and Habakkuk is crying out to the Yahweh, His God, His covenant God. And then he personalizes it. Oh, Yahweh, my God, my Holy One. 
Habakkuk knows that he doesn't just come to an impersonal God who's aloof or separate. He comes to a deeply personal God who has made himself known and has entered into a covenant with his people. And because of this covenant, Habakkuk is actually able to say with confidence, we will not die. He's not saying we will not physically die. He's, he's saying you cannot forsake your people. We know this, God. I know this. Habakkuk is affirming a fundamental truth in the midst of his lamenting, a fundamental truth that we all need to remember in a messed up world, and that is this. We belong to God. There is a security in knowing that God's commitment to you, to us, is unwavering. It's unwavering. God will never let you go, Christian. Do you believe that? Do you need to remind yourself of that? Even as your next sentence or next breath says, well, then why is this happening? God will never let you go. It's, and not your sin, not the sin of others, not any trial, not any setback could ever separate you from his love. Because he's a God of covenant, because he's a personal God, because he has entered into a relationship with us through Christ, and he will never break it. Habakkuk also acknowledges that God is in control, that he's sovereign, that everything is under his wise control. A couple of things that point to that. He says, he calls God a rock. You are a rock, which is a metaphor that, that God is a firm foundation, that he's strong. Then, but then he also says, O Lord, verse 12, O Lord, you have ordained them, talking about the Babylonians, as a judgment. The word ordain, I used it last week when I said God can ordain evil to accomplish good. What is the word ordain? And I, and I got that. He, it's here. God, I didn't say that. God himself acknowledges, I am ordaining evil to accomplish ultimate good. What does the word ordain mean? It means that which God establishes, determines, or appoints. When God ordains something, it's, it's anything that he establishes, determines, or appoints. And he's saying, God is saying, I have appointed Babylon. I have raised them up. And he tells us how evil they are for the purpose of disciplining his people. He was active in determining this evil people would destroy the land of Israel and take his people into exile. And that, that very thing, even though Habakkuk is reminding himself, God, I know you're sovereign. I know you're in control. I know you're a strong rock and, and you're powerful, which means even you can bend evil to your will. But, but it, it's still, this is what make, doesn't make any sense to him. There's still a disconnect between what he believes and what he sees. And isn't that the tension for us too? God, I know this is true about you, but when I look at life, this is what I see, and we live in that tension, don't we? That's where life exists. In verse 13, he lays out his complaint. He's wrestling this thing out. Earlier, in verse 1 through 11, God, his complaint was, God, you don't care about the injustice around us. And so his, 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 if you could call it this, his accusation against God, his complaint against God is, God, you seem indifferent. But now his complaint is, God, you are inconsistent. 
Before, look, you were indifferent to the violence around us. But now, now that you're telling us what you're going to do by using the Babylonians, now it seems like you're inconsistent. You are so pure, verse 13. You cannot look on evil. Then why would you ordain such horrific evil to do your will? He's shocked. How could a God who's eternal and holy and covenantal and personal and strong and sovereign, how could you, how could you ordain this evil? What kind of evil? Habakkuk, as, as if we need to, to, a, a deeper picture into the kind of evil that Babylon is, that the people were led by their king. He says, humanity's like, like the fish of the sea, God, and Babylon is like this fisherman, and he ruthlessly catches fish with hooks and nets, and, he, and it goes unchecked. He says, it's like they have no ruler. Historians tell us that the Babylonians literally, when they would capture a people, would literally place hooks in their lower jaw and drag them captive as a, as a way of gloating over their captives. That's the kind of brutality that appalled Habakkuk. The issue here is not that God would bring judgment on his people. Habakkuk knew that. He knew that God would, must do that. The issue is how God's righteous purposes could be fulfilled with such violence and evil. And so he's wrestling this thing out with God. Listen, I said this last week. I'm going to say it again. Lament is a lifeline for our faith. The opposite of lament or complaint is to deny or diminish our suffering. Either you're lamenting it, you acknowledge it, or you're denying it. You're covering it up. You're ignoring it. I know a lot of us are like, I don't even know how to lament. I've never lamented. I just kind of do life. And the Bible teaches us there's a, there's a godly a, a, a way that we can live face-to-face with God in a more intimate way, and that is acknowledging our suffering, acknowledging the evils, and crying out to Him. But as we lament, here's what we're learning now. As we lament, we must keep remembering and recounting God's character. Because there is a way to lament and to complain that, that loses your way. Where you begin to forget God's character. And Habakkuk is saying, listen, I didn't forget who you are. It's because of who you are that I can come to you. You see, he's lamenting in faith. He's wrestling in faith. And it guards us from, from, from arrogantly thinking that we know how to rule the world. That we know what's best. What you believe may not match what you see. And then you have to ask this question. What's more reliable? What God has revealed about himself in his word? Or your interpretation of how you think life should go? We need to remember God's character even as we met life's troubles. But the second lesson we learned here in this text from Habakkuk is that we must wait patiently and expectantly for the Lord to fulfill his purposes. After voicing this complaint to God, what does he do? What does he do? He does something countercultural for all of us. He waits upon the Lord. Chapter 2, verse 1. He finishes, and then he says, I'm going to take my stand at the watch post. I'm going to station myself on the tower, and I'm going to look at what God says to me. I'm going to wait for God to respond to what I have said to him. He cries out to God twice, he asks questions, he raises his concerns, he shares his doubts, and now he says, you know what? 
I'm going to go out of the city, because he was in the city of Jerusalem. He walks out to the city, because that's where these towers were, out to where the wall was that surrounded the city. He climbs up to one of the, the watchtowers where you see where the enemies are coming. You can see farther. And he climbs up to the top, and he takes the post of a watchman. Why? Because watchmen wait. That's their, that's their job. They wait to see what's, go- what's coming. And he says, visually, physically, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to model. This is my posture. I'm going to wait to hear from the Lord. Isn't that significant? He believed God would speak to him. And so he patiently waits for God's word. And, and many of us find ourselves waiting today. And we're waiting on God's promises to be fulfilled. Or waiting for him to do something we, we desire or need or clinging. And we're waiting for God to bring good out of bad. Here, let me just ask you, what are you waiting for today? Maybe you need to to think through this afternoon to to talk about it in your small group. What are you waiting for today? And then the deeper question is, why is waiting so hard? Why is waiting so hard? I think in part because we've been trained to expect everything instant. It's part of the, it's part of, you know, we don't know this, but our, our culture catechizes us. Did you know that? Our culture trains us. What does catechize mean? It means to train. It means that it's what you do with kids to help them understand something. You, you teach them things and you, and you repeat it over and over until they get it. That's what our culture does. It trains us. And we have been trained to, to demand everything instant. Instant food, instant news, instant answers. And if the page takes more than a millisecond to load, I'm annoyed. And I judge that website. And if I can't get all the answers and exactly right now, what is the weather going to be right now? And if if the weather app is all messed up, it annoys me. Just give me the answer now. We're trained. On a deep level, waiting is hard because we think, we think we're in control. We like being in control, don't we? It makes us feel strong. It makes us feel secure. And it makes us feel significant. And then we have to wait in line at a grocery store or wait for a package to arrive from Amazon and we get blistering mad. Why? Why do we have, we have to wait for results from the doctor? Why? Why are we mad? Why? Because it makes us feel weak. It makes us feel insecure. And it makes us feel insignificant. It makes us feel like we're not in control. Habakkuk climbs the watchtower and waits for an answer from the Lord. He puts everything on hold, if you will, until he is heard from the Lord. You might say, I can't wait. I'm just, I'm not a patient person, period. All right, move on, Mark. Say something else. No, I'm not. You know why? You can't say that. You can't say, I'm not a patient person. You can learn to be patient. How so? A couple, there's a lot, there's like five things here. Let me just mention two. You learn to wait on the Lord by cultivating humility. By cultivating humility. Waiting on the Lord starts with cultivating humility. I'm going to read from James 4. James tells us, Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and, and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. 
yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Catch that? You don't know what tomorrow will bring. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, and this is evil. James doesn't mince words. Our our inability to wait, our presumption that we're in control, it's evil. It's arrogant. When things go wrong, we think, you know what? My anger, my, my, my worry, my, my fears, those are things I can't help but feel, okay? Ju- they just are. But James is saying, no, those feelings arise out of assumption of your own omniscience. You think you know it all. You think you are in control. You think when you say, next year I'm going to do this, I'm going to plan. There's nothing wrong with that. But he says, if you do it from the assumption that you know what tomorrow brings, that's arrogant. You know why? Because we think, if this thing X doesn't happen, then life will be a disaster. Or if, if this thing X does happen, life will be amazing. And James is almost asking us, how do you know? How do you know? Do you? Or is it born out of assumption that you can see how this all will play out? You know, there's sometimes where my kids are, are trying to do something, you know, they're beginning a task, and I can tell it's not going to play out well. I can just tell. It's just not going to go well. It's going to cause more heartache for them. They're going to get frustrated. Something's going to break. They're going to get into a fight. And I'm going to have to be, you know, interrupted. But they think this is the way we're going to do it. There's no other way. Okay. Okay. If you will humble yourself and say, you know what? I don't know the end from the beginning. I'm not God. Life stinks right now, or I'm really confused, or, uh, or, or, or this thing doesn't make sense, or why do I, okay, but I will wait on the Lord who has already ordained the end from the beginning, because that's what faith is. Waiting is an act of faith. Do you realize that? You say, waiting feels like I'm doing nothing. Oh, no, you're not doing nothing. You are doing something. You are exercising faith. Waiting is not inactive. It's not passive. It's active. When you wait on the Lord, you're demonstrating faith by trusting the heart of God even when you don't understand the will of God. So waiting takes humility, but also waiting on the Lord requires obedience. God tells Habakkuk in verse 3, wait for it. The vision is going to come at its appointed time. That's a command. Wait for it. There it is. It's an act of obedience. He commands us to wait. Often God, oftentimes God calls us to do things we don't want to do. And Habakkuk took up a post as a watchman or a guard on the tower. Anyone who's in law enforcement or, or the military or if you're in security, you know that when you're stationed somewhere, you don't leave your post. You don't leave your post. It doesn't matter if you're not feeling well or if you're tired or if you're bored, right? Imagine Habakkuk goes up to that watch post and is like, this is taking forever, God. This is boring. 
Imagine a, someone who's literally stationed up there waiting for enemies to come, waiting to see if something, and they, imagine if they got bored and be like, nah, I'm going to take the day off. And then an enemy comes five minutes after they get down. You can't leave your station. Habakkuk is still struggling, isn't he? He, hasn't, he doesn't have his answers. He doesn't have his questions answered. He, has, he doesn't have it all figured out. Even God's answers to him are not, are not kind of fully fleshed out. They're important. They're significant. But he doesn't quite understand all of it. But he, he, doesn't, but he doesn't give up. He doesn't leave his post. You might be confused by what God is doing right now. You might be frustrated by what he's doing in your life or in our nation or in the world. Fine. I get it. Maybe your prayers aren't being answered the way you want. What should you do? What should you do? I can tell you what not to do. Don't leave your post. Don't walk away. I know you're tired. I know you're frustrated. I know you might be bored. I know, I know, you, I know, I know. He, he's saying, don't leave your post. You see, when life gets hard, God seems distant to us. We, there's this huge temptation, and some of you are in it right now. I know it. There's this huge temptation when you're in that tension. Uh, I know what I believe, but I know what life is showing me, and I'm in this tension, and here's the temptation and the tension. You stop doing the things that God has called you to do. You stop worshiping with the family of, of God. You stop reading your, God's word. You stop praying. You stop going to small group. You start kind of pulling away from all those things. Why? Be because you become so self-focused that you lose sight of the very things that help you grow in your faith. I'm, I'm just saying, be aware of that temptation because before you know it, you stop doing those things. Oh, I'm not going to go to church for a few weeks. And a few weeks becomes a few months and a few years. And then I talk to believers and they haven't been to church in years. That's not okay. That's not Christianity. You say, oh yeah, I haven't been reading my Bible. Okay, God's grace is sufficient, right? You're my brother. But I, if, if you're never reading God's word and you think that you're going to be able to stay your post and you think that that's going to help you get through it, that's a lie. That's the enemy saying, God, God does not love you, right? The, 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 the fruit in front of Adam and Eve. God said, don't eat it or, you'll, or we'll die. No, you won't die. You don't, you, don't need this. you don't need to pray. You don't need God's people. I listened to a sermon this week where a preacher shared an illustration from the life of John Newton, the great hymn writer uh, who was also a pastor. And he, he was written a letter by one of his congregants and he responded to someone who was saying, I'm getting nothing out of my prayer life. And Newton said this, in essence, I can assure you of this, you will get nothing out of not praying. It might feel like you're getting nothing out of going to the throne of grace daily, but I can guarantee you, you will get nothing if you stop. What's he saying? Keep it up. Keep at it. Keep living by obedience as you wait in the Lord, not because your obedience earns anything from the Lord, not because your obedience twists God's arm. No, that's a, that's a warped view, and that's what we often do. No, but because you know God is there. Why do you stay at that watch post? Because you never know when he's going to show up. 
Why does that watchman get, put, get stationed there? Because people, the, the people never knew what was going to happen. They never knew whether a storm was coming, an enemy was coming, uh, uh, friendly people were coming. They just never knew. Why do you, why do you walk by obedience? Because you, you trust. You never know when God's going to show up. You never know when the next time you sit and got down God's word and you realize, this is what I needed to hear. You never know. And when you go to small group, that's the week where there's going to be a breakthrough in someone else's life. You never know when you come here and you realize that's what God wanted me to hear. You never know. And so you don't leave your post. You know that he's shaping your character. You know that he's working if you don't see him. You know that his silence does not mean his absence. Habakkuk didn't know when God would answer. And so he waited obediently and he waited humbly And what does God say? In chapter 2, verse 2, God shows up and he says, write this vision down. In other words, document it. Make it clear for everyone to see and hear. And what does he say? This vision awaits its appointed time. In other words, God has a specific plan that he is actively unfolding in the world No matter how out of control things seem, God's word and God's promises will be fulfilled. He is Lord over history. Secondly, he says the vision is trustworthy. Notice, it will not lie. Even if it seems slow, wait for it. It will not delay. Wait for his promises expectantly. It it will surely come because God cannot lie. Sometimes it feels like God is stringing us along. Right? Like he's always holding out on us. I think of Abraham. He's told to go outside, look at the stars in the sky, try to count them. Abraham, I can't count them. There's so many, God. They're numerous. They're innumerable. And God's like, yeah, that's how many your descendants will be. That's how many children and children's children you're going to have. You're going to be an entire nation. And Abraham's like, yeah, but I don't even have a single heir. You haven't even given me a single child, God. And you're telling me to count the stars. My wife, Sarah, and I can't even get pregnant. And it feels like he's stringing them along because it takes 25 years between the promise and the provision. Between the promise and the fulfillment. God wasn't stringing him along. He was shaping him and Sarah into the man and woman of faith that he knew they needed to be. He was was shaping them to walk by faith and not by sight. God wasn't just committed to what he was going to do through Abraham. He was committed to what he was going to do in Abraham. Just because you have to wait for God's promises to be fulfilled, don't think for a second that means they won't come to pass. He cannot lie, he says. It will surely come. Wait patiently and expectantly for God to fulfill his purposes. And then the third lesson we see as Habakkuk learns to wrestle and wait by faith is this. We need to live by faith in the righteous one who lived by faith. Verse 3 and 4. God responds to He's, he's directly responding to his complaint in verse, thir- in verse 13 of chapter 1. Habakkuk says, you, you look idly on evil. You, you're remaining silent. God says, no, I do not look idly at evil. I do not remain silent. But his response is not exactly what we want to hear. God says, wait for my plan to unfold. That's my response to you. Wait. Live by faith. 
In the immediate context, he's saying, God is saying, I will use Babylon to bring judgment on my people. And then as we read chapter 2 next week, uh, in, in the following weeks, we're going to see God will not only use Babylon to judge his people, he's going to judge Babylon. They're not going to get away with it. They're not going to have a pass. Habakkuk was incorrect when he says they seem like a fisherman that have no, a fisherman see that have no ruler. That's not true, Habakkuk. I am in charge. God is personifying Babylon here in verse 4. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. In other words, Babylon is living by a a sense of self-righteousness. He's full of pride. There's a self-reliance which reveals a lack of internal righteousness and prevents him from seeking an external righteousness. The Babylonians didn't think they needed anything outside of themselves. They're strong. They're wealthy. They got got more wine and alcohol than they can imagine. They 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 can do whatever they want, they think. They're deluding themselves. They think they're like God. Verse 5, he says, their their wine and their greed delude them. It deludes them to think they can do whatever they want, whenever they want, to whomever they want. They're untouchable. Self-righteousness. Those who reject God as God try to live life apart from God. We learn, verse 5, they'll never be at rest. An arrogant man who's never at rest. The word literally means never at home. If you try to live apart from God, if you try to live apart from his purposes, his plans, apart from faith, you'll never be at rest. You'll never be at home. You'll always feel like you're wandering. You'll always feel like you're, like you're somewhere you're not supposed to be, that you're not settled anywhere. And God is saying, listen, you're never at rest because you find rest in me alone. And that's when God says, even though his soul is puffed up, verse 4, he's not up right within him, but... The righteous shall live by his faith. That might not seem like a big statement, but this is the, this is the theological center of the book. If you write in your Bible or highlight, I would highlight and circle that verse. This is it. This, is the, this sets the context for the entire book. It sets the context for the entire Bible. It's one of the most important verses in the Bible. How important is it? The Apostle Paul takes this verse in, in Galatians 3 and in Romans 1 and basically says, this is the foundation of the gospel of Jesus Christ. In fact, it's so important, next week, next week, right in the middle of Habakkuk, we're taking a pause, going to Galatians 3, and we're going to preach on the righteous shall live by faith. It's that important. Hebrews 10 talks, the book of Hebrews quotes it. What, what does it mean? Habakkuk is lamenting to God, that verse, again, back at verse 13, that he remains silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he. God, you're remaining silent. But the question really is, if Habakkuk's going to bring up who is more righteous, right? He thinks Babylon is less righteous than our people. Yes, our people are messed up, but they're more messed up. How can you use a less righteous to punish the more righteous one? And, and I think God's answer here is, whoa, 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 let's back up when we talk about righteousness, okay? You want to talk about righteous? Who is Righteous. Let, Jesus said this, when, when a woman was caught in adultery and all the guys wanted to stone him, right? Right? Dignified men. Basically, people like me, right? Okay. 
Who should stone her first? All right, pick up your stones. Ready, guys? The first one who has no sin can throw the first stone. Go ahead. Let him who has no sin throw the first stone. And what do they all do? They drop the rocks and walk away because they're not idiots. They're self-righteous, but they're not idiots. Is there anyone who can claim to be righteous based on how they live? And God's answer to us is no. Habakkuk wants to question God's justice here. He's questioning, and we all do. God, why? This isn't right. This isn't fair. And God says, listen, no one is righteous. No, not one. That's Isaiah. We act like the Babylonians in in many ways, don't we? We think we are self-sufficient. We think we can live life apart from God. We think we can justify ourselves. It is the core human problem that we think we don't need God. We're in the midst of a pandemic, and we think we can do life apart from God. We got all kinds of political turmoil, and we're going to figure out how we can do this thing apart from God. No, are, we, are you kidding me? I can't even get up in the morning and do each day apart from God, let alone deal with these huge things dealing with our world. From God's perspective, you know what's just? You know what's fair? That we would all be judged eternally for our sin. We don't want justice, really. You know what we want justice for? Everyone except ourselves. You want to talk about justice? That's fine. Justice is an important term. It's an important biblical truth. And and listen, if you hear us say justice, don't think of something that's crazy. Think of something biblical. Giving giving what someone deserves, what what they are due. And God says what justice is for all of humanity is, is separation from me forever because of your sin. That's what's fair. But he doesn't just end there. That's not what his response is, right? This is good news. Why? Because as as Pastor Brady said this week, we were talking, he said there's a plot twist. What? But there's more. Why? Because there's a righteousness that's possible and it doesn't come by living righteously. Well, then how does it come, God? I'm, I'm glad you asked. By faith. By faith. The righteous shall live by faith. faith. What is faith? Faith is believing at generally. It's believing God is who he says he is and will do what he says he will do. But more specifically, faith is looking at the circumstances around you as unfair and as hard as they may be and still clinging to what you know to be true about God and his redemptive plan. That's what faith is. Clinging to what you know to be true about God and his redemptive plan. That's the key to faith. But believing what God has already made clear about his plan to rescue you from you. You see, from the beginning, back in Genesis, God promised that he would send a deliverer. Genesis 3, after Adam and Eve sinned and, and there's the curse placed on all of creation, he says, I'm sending a seed, a seed from you, Eve, a Messiah, a rescuer who will crush the head of Satan. He'll rescue you from sin and death and bring you back into right, right relationship with me. In other words, God would bring a righteousness outside of ourselves. God wants Habakkuk to keep waiting in faith, not just for the deliverance of Israel from their enemies, but the deliverance of his people from their ultimate enemies. Sin, Satan, death. How would he do that? How would Habakkuk, how would God accomplish what he told Habakkuk here, that the righteous shall live by faith? Not by sending another prophet like him. 
but by sending the ultimate prophet in Jesus. You see, Jesus came at the appointed time, verse 3. At just the right time, Galatians tells us, uh, Paul tells us in Galatians, at just the right time, Jesus came down. And God's vision seemed slow, but it was right on time. And as God in the flesh, Jesus lived a truly righteous life. He never sinned. He never tried to live life apart from God. He was the only righteous person who ever lived. And what did we do to the ultimate righteous one? We killed him. You and I crucified him. The world rejected him. We did the exact same thing that we would do in Habakkuk's time. We reject God's word. We reject his answer. God did the same thing at this time as he was doing in Jesus. He was punishing evil, strangely enough, using a greater evil. In verse 13, I'll read it again because it's so powerful. He says, Habakkuk laments of God. Listen, God, you are of pure eyes than to see evil and cannot look at wrong. Why do you idly look at traitors and remain silent when the wicked swallows up the man more righteous than he? Do you realize the only time that this has ever been true was when Jesus was on the cross? What was Jesus doing on the cross? What was Jesus doing when he was being crucified on the cross? He was waiting. He was waiting. He was waiting patiently on the Lord as he endured the cross. He waited as he took your sin and my sin. He was waiting as he died your death, the death you and I deserved because of our sin. And he didn't give up even under the wrath of God. He waited. Isn't that stunning, church? Jesus was waiting on the Lord. Maybe you're asking, where is God in my waiting? He's right there. And I know that because on the cross, he was waiting for you. He waited patiently for you. If he waited for you in that worst moment ever, can you wait for him in this moment right now? Why would he do that? Why would God ordain the evil of the cross to make the vision as clear as possible? That it's only by faith in Jesus Christ that anyone can be declared righteous. You see, if you've placed your faith in Christ, you belong to God. You are his beloved son, his beloved daughter. And your greatest enemies of sin and death and and, and even the devil, they're they're gone. They're defeated. Sin has no hold on you. Um, Death is not your ultimate end. Suffering will not define you. And the best part is, even if you falter, your confidence isn't in your faith, it's in Jesus, the faithful one. You see, one day, Jesus' promises are all going to come true. And it's going to be sooner than you can imagine. One day, the heavens are going to open up, and Jesus is going to return, and he's going to set up his, his earthly kingdom right here on earth. His millennial kingdom, you know what what we're going to do? We're going to sing, we're going to dance, and we're going to laugh, and we're going to create, and we're going to, we're going to, it was going to be glorious. We're going to eat. Listen, on the cross, Jesus waited for you. Can you wait for him? Paul says, for I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that will be revealed in us. The glory. Not worth comparing. 
You see, waiting's hard, I know, but it's not even worth comparing to the glory to come. Keep waiting. Stay on your post. Don't give up. It's coming. It's coming at the appointed time. Just like he died and rose again at the right time, he's going to come back at the right time. And when we see it all from the end, when we, when we see it all laid out, when we see, we look at the back side of the tapestry, when we see the front side, it's all going to make sense. And then we're going to bow before our Father and say, God, you are wise. You are eternal. You are covenantal. You are sovereign. You are all the things I knew you to be. And now I see it in, in faith to face and it's amazing let's keep wrestling and waiting by faith and let's keep living by faith in the righteous one who lived by faith would you pray with me father we know we know two things that life is hard, that you are good. And we don't know how those two connect fully. We don't know how they fit together perfectly, but we do know they do. Because we trust your heart. We know that the cross is the greatest the greatest moment in history, and yet it was the greatest evil in history. God, help us to keep remembering who you are, to keep looking back to the cross at the righteous one who died to make many righteous. That we would be recipients of a righteousness not earned, but given as a gift. Maybe even now there are some who have heard of Christianity or maybe they grew up in church or maybe they're children or students who have heard this message and they, 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 they kind of know it in their mind but they've not applied it to their souls, their very hearts. I pray that right now, whoever's listening, wherever they are, that right now in this moment that if someone needs to cry out to you with saving faith, turning from whatever they've been looking to, I pray they cry out to you right now and believe Jesus you are the righteous one who, who lived and died for me, who rose again to give us eternal life. And I trust in you to be my savior. God, would you bring salvation? And for those of us who gather this morning around this table to celebrate communion together, help us to do what what Habakkuk did by remembering who you are, remembering your character, that your body and blood shed for us is your promise you would never give up on us. That we might continue to wait and not give up on you. God, we pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.